Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We discuss the latest F1 news and look ahead to the second half of the season with Karut Chandok. F1 is back. The Belgian Grand Prix this weekend is the first of a run of nine weekends that will decide a destiny of the World Championship. Obviously, the August break has been a pretty busy one. While there's been no racing, there's been a huge amount going on off track with Fernando Alonso, Daniel Ricciardo, Force India, all sorts of big stories going on there. So plenty for us to have a look at, as well as later on having a bit of a look at what we expect from the second half of the season. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and my first guest is Karin Chandok. Now, of course, the really big news of August was your coming out of racing retirement to actually compete again. I don't know why you keep sending me off into retirement, but yes, I'm coming back with the Goodwood Revival. I've had a little shakedown of about 20 laps in a McLaren Elva M1A from uh, 1965. And yeah, racing at the Revival, which is going to be a mildly terrifying experience because this thing's got a lot of power, a lot of torque, and is basically on wooden tires. So yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty hairy stuff. And you've done all the stuff you need to do to get back into racing, done the arts test, the stress-related ECG and all that that stuff? No, I probably should have, really. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite that old yet. Not quite, but, uh, not quite. But, uh, but getting on. And also joining me is Scott Mitchell. Now, I'm most disappointed because you were threatening to wear a vintage Charlton Athletic shirt 
to this recording. Yeah, I put it on and I was just like, oh, this is a little bit tight. And I was like, I didn't want to didn't want to make it too, you know, uh, I didn't, didn't want to put you off your stride, Ed, basically by constantly looking over at me in my glorious white and red Charlton shirt. This is you know, just a little bit too t- uh, snugly fitted uh, around the waist. But yes, I, I, I was very tempted. I picked it up for a bargain, £35 uh, last weekend. And it's actually the it's probably the nicest Charlton shirt I own. So I was keen to, but I've decided to uh, to, to, to wait for another time. That suggests you're carrying a little bit too much weight, though, Scott. You know how I feel about people carrying a bit too much weight on well, this it's podcast. Well, it's a summer break. Like that, that, That's what happens, isn't it? You go every, everyone's been away at the beach having a great time. No one's done any work. It's just been... And also, it's the fact karoon has been feeding me cake this morning as well. So that, that's that's not helped my cause. Yeah, I'm very, very pleased that Karun has supplied the, the king of cakes, as I call it, carrot cake, which is an old gone, coincidentally. I know. Surprise, surprise. I didn't realise you were a carrot cake fan. Noted for next time. There we go. It's uh, Well, you know how to... Uh, how to, well, I was going to say how to get me to be extra nice to you on the podcast, but I've not done very well so far. No. <laughs> well, where should we start? There's been so much going on. Let, let's start. We have talked about this on a previous edition of the podcast. That was straight after the announcement. But, Corinne, what do you make of Fernando Alonso's decision not to race in Formula 1 in 2019? That's the correct phraseology. Well, obviously, you know, it's his personal choice and his personal decision. I think there are a lot of fans around the world who are really disappointed not to see him. He's still hugely popular Wherever we, wherever we go, uh, you know, his radio messages for TV broadcasters and, and viewers around the world has been brilliant. You know, his rants about this and the other, uh, it's always been entertaining. But, you know, as a racing driver, he, on a Sunday, he, he's the benchmark. You know, I still believe that when it comes to lap after lap, relentless uh, ability to dra- drag a car around and deliver that lap time, He's one of the best in the business and, uh, you know, Formula One will miss him. I think in some ways, you know, he's come out and had all these different justifications for he's missing. I don't know, he's, he's talked about the wheel-to-wheel racing not being what he liked and he talks about all these other challenges. Fundamentally, all of us, including him, know that if he was in a Mercedes or a Ferrari fighting for the World Championship, he wouldn't have quit Formula One. And, you know, I think he's just frustrated and he's gone. Well, let's actually just hear from Fernando Alonso himself, as I was among a group of journalists who heard from Fernando up at Silverstone before the World Endurance Championship round at Silverstone last week. I think uh, the door open is is more because you know I think uh, I'm I'm driving at the best level of my career now, and why to close doors? You know, if anything could happen in the future, you know, I'm still young. I'm not uh, 45 years old, and uh, I feel I feel strong, and I'm doing this year. 27 races so you know I my thinking is to stop and that's why I, I stop but uh, who knows so you know that, that's that's the reason why and then the why I stop as I said in the in the video I have other bigger challenges than, than those Formula 1 can offer right now it's a sport or a series that uh, definitely has some some very positive things and I've been enjoying for 17 years or 18 years of my life. Um, I think I achieved what I much more than what I dream when I started in 2001 and um, right now you know the let's say the action on track is not the one that I dream of when I joined Formula One and uh, when I was in different series or the action on track that I experience in other years most of my announcement went to a sadness or a sad moment of frustration 
over the last couple of years for the lack of result. I've been racing for 18 years in Formula One, I won two. So, arguably, 16 years of my life, I was frustrated. And it was not the case, and it's not the case now. I stopped because the action on track, in my opinion, I feel very poor. In fact, what we talk about more in Formula One is off track. We talk about polemics, we talk about uh, radio messages, we talk about all these things. And when we talk so many times about those things, it's a bad sign. You know, it's because mm -hmm. the on track uh, action was very poor on that weekend. And uh, that's what I feel in Formula One now. And uh, I think. Uh, there are other series that maybe offer uh, better action, more joy, and uh, I think uh, uh, more happiness. So is what I try. Everything you said about your reasoning on F1 is consistent with your previous statements about not enjoying F1 so much. But results must surely come into it a bit. For example, if it was realistic to think McLaren could fight for a world championship next year and he could win a third world championship, you'd yeah, have stayed, wouldn't you? It's true, but uh, when I was in 2003, 2004, 2008, 2009, 2011, you know, I, I, I was not winning any single race on those years, but uh, it was difficult to predict what could happen now in Spa or Monza. Now we can write down what is going to happen in Spa and Monza. We can put the first 15 positions with uh, maybe one or two mistakes. So that uh, how predictable everything became is, uh, is tough. You know, we go to Barcelona, we test uh, the first day in winter testing, and you know what you will do until November in Abu Dhabi. And uh, it's, it's tough. Well, when we did that last podcast, we did a little bit of uh, sort of guesstimating why Alonso exactly was stepping down. And, and, and as you've, you, you've explained there with that clip, we, we now heard a bit more from him and, and the reasons, as, as Karun alluded to. I, I completely understand his, his desire to do something different and understand and accept he wants to walk away the problem I've got is the reasons he's saying he's walking away it's that claim that it's for all yeah. these like perfect oh he's just such isn't he a, I don't know the best word for it it's not charitable but it's like uh, he's like trying to be the voice of the people is it oh I want F1 to be this better place it's not a good show Every, it's too predictable for everybody he's, he's absolutely got, playing to the gallery yeah it's, it's but, a, but he does that isn't he he's, he's you know he how many times in the last three years have we heard that was the best lap of my entire career. This is the best ever race I've ever, ever driven. You Nobody's know, ever does. earned a 10th place like this one, that yeah. sort of thing. And he said he did it with Le Mans as well, didn't he? He said he rated the Le Mans, his Le Mans win oh, I know. above every any other. And this is what really annoys me with with this claim that he's doing it because it's too predictable. Is Okay, we know that Toyota got chucked out of the wet race at Silverstone afterwards, but they had scored a dominant 1-2. There's their third dominant 1-2 from three wet races. Every single person going to, go to a wet race at the weekend, they know that Toyota's going to win. We don't have that in F1. No. You don't, you go, I mean, I, I appreciate the point that, as a general rule, one team might dominate the weekend, so you won't know who's going to dominate and it might still be a bit boring. But we've had good races this year. We do have a good battle at the front. And if Alonso was in that battle, I don't think anyone would actually ever argue that he would be walking away from F1 at the end of the year. Well, the, the World Championship battles changed lead five times this year, which is brilliant. I think it's, it's been great. I mean, it's, it's, some, it's among the highest number of lead changes. I wrote something about this a few weeks ago. I should yeah. remember the number, but it's it's in among like the top ten seasons for at this stage, even higher than that. In fact, I think so. Sort of, it's rare that this happens yeah. so much. But when you look back at Alonso, at Alonso's career, it's it, in a way it's a bit like Emerson Fittipaldi, isn't it? You know, came in, won those two World Championships early on, and then Emma went 
to drive for his brother's team and then just never won anything again. And so it's, you know, Alonso stretched it out over twice as long, but it's kind of the same story in some ways. I wonder if uh, in a few in years to come, when I, when I look back and I, I'm writing stories about Alonso, I'll refer to him as a three-time world champion because that appears to be my thing with Emerson Fittipaldi. I, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I'm referring specifically to the two titles he won. I will just start the story and refer to him as a three-time Formula 1 champion because clearly I Make can't sure let it... Make sure you get a copy editor on him. Yeah, I clearly can't let it go. And it'll be the same with Alonso. We've talked about this in previous podcasts, haven't we, about like this is a guy who... He should be finishing with, with more than two titles. Um, at the weekend at Silverson, another ex-McLaren F1 driver who never said he was retiring but hasn't come back, Jensen Button, said that Alonso's not bluffing when he says he's leaving the door open to a return. So that's a 2019 hap- comes and goes. McLaren looks better. Alonso's been out for a while. So, Karun, you've, you, you've, you've been in F1. You've got experience in lots of other cars. If he goes away for a year... How rusty will he be? Is someone is Alonso good enough to come back and, and do the business? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's not never easy to do. And I think taking a step away from F one and coming back in is is extremely hard just because of the level you need to operate to deliver that, that final qualifying lap. You know, Raikkonen's come back without that devastating speed of the mid two thousands. Schumacher the same. You know, Lauda came back and won a world championship, but arguably he wasn't as fast as Prost or he wasn't as fast as he was before he he went away. And You must be getting worried. You've been seven years on the sidelines prior to your comeback to F1. <laughs> yeah, phone's not ringing yet. Um, and and even, even Prost, you know, you he had a year out, obviously, in, in 92 and came back in 93. And, you know, I think I don't know if... He didn't. If he had testing regulations like we have today, whether he would have been able to get back up to speed. You know, back then, they could go to Estoril. I've I've seen the testing notes where they went to Estoril for days on end and just allowed Prost to go round and round and round, and he so he he was able to knock the rust off. Nowadays, it's not. You know, they haven't got that potential. So, uh, you know, Alonso is is brilliant, and I think the question will be for twenty twenty. Is a year-old, slightly rusty Fernando Alonso still better than any other options on the market? Probably. Probably, as, yes. As, I, think, I think there's a difference between a driver who who stays active as well and one who stops, and Alonso yeah. is going to be active. Yes, there'll be a tiny bit of, uh, I guess you call it degradation in terms of not being in it week in, week out, but I think that'll be fairly minor. Obviously, that isn't going to last forever, but I think the interesting thing is what it 100% confirms is that Alonso, you know, as he sort of alluded to in that clip, if he had a championship contending car, he'd be in it. And he's basically sat there thinking, right, I can go and do IndyCar, which obviously IndyCar have made comments about trying to make this McLaren-Alonso thing happen. So we're, we're hoping to see him in IndyCar next year. He's got his WEC programme. There's three races next year. So we know he'll do the first three rounds of of 2019, or that's the last three rounds of the, of the super season, as, it, as it's called. But it just shows that he's just waiting for the phone to ring, either with one of the big three teams needing him which you never know may happen sometimes yeah, drivers I mean, retire or move or for mclaren to suddenly break through which is probably the the less likely scenario but but you never know particularly i suppose the real question for me is you know, mclaren's not going to be winning world championships in 2020 2021 it's very optimistic but at least there's a rules reset there and there's a there's a, a slither of a chance i guess yeah i mean it's the market is is so fluid at the moment and i think you know, you've got people, when you've got people like Ocon who are available and on the market, 
then Leclerc and people like that. You can't. You know, I can't see Ferrari having Alonso back. I think Christian Horner has been pretty vocal about he doesn't see Alonso coming there to Milton Keynes. Mercedes, you know, again. Certainly not while they've got Hamilton. There's no yeah. need to even countenance it. And, and they've got all these drivers on their books, or Toto's got all these drivers on their, on his books. So, um, you know, George Russell, you've got Ocon, you've got obviously Valtteri now. And, and actually, I was looking at the qualifying head-to-head, and Valtteri versus Lewis is actually the the closest one apart from Stroll Sorokin at the moment. You know, he's 7-5. And nobody else is, is in that way. Hulkenberg signs as well the same 7-5. But, you know, you'd have to say that it's it's a nice, happy balance they've got. Unless, as you say, if Lewis leaves. and that ch- But if Lewis leaves or if Seb leaves, that changes the whole landscape of, of the driver market. That, that ultimately is what Alonso is hoping for. He's hoping to kind of outlast people and think, well, you never know. Because these these things do happen. Strange decisions get made by people, or not all surprise decisions rather than strange decisions. It's not impossible that a few people might think, do you know what, I'm not going to do this. Um, you know, it, it does happen. So that that's what he's kind of hoping for. And that's why he's left the door open, I think. I, I, I just think it's going to be another case of um, Alonso being in, in the wrong place at the wrong time because I, I, I can see F1 accelerating past the point where he's relevant to the 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 available the available places on the market because as as we say we've got different drivers locked into different places but but when stuff becomes available i think an alonso who's been off the radar or who is a bit off the radar is going to be behind someone like an ocon who is going to be one of those sort of upper midfield drivers who has the most flexibility because it's a basically as long as he keeps impressing Mercedes it's just where Mercedes wants to put him at any given time so if one of those places that in theory would accept Alonso becomes available is someone like Ocon not going to beat him to it and I, th- I think uh, I think Alonso he's made made a rod for his own back really we, we, we talked about this uh, at length before it, it's been a topic that's probably dominated F1 discussions in the pub for the last 10 years or so, Alonso's infamous inability to pick the right move at the right time. Um, and it would be, I don't know, I can't work out if it would be fitting in a way or not fitting at all for his retirement to do exactly the same thing. He should retire at the wrong time. Well, of course, the most fitting thing to happen would be for McLaren to somehow transform their form in time for next year and for Carlos Sainz to win the World Championship, his replacement. Of course, that's uh, that's pretty fanciful, but that'd be kind of way his luck goes. But what do we make of Sainz to McLaren, Karine? Logical choice? Yeah, I think so. I think they they needed an established, experienced driver. You know, obviously they have got Norris on their books, but he he would be a rookie. I think he's a very, very good driver, a very talented driver, but he would be a rookie. And I think they needed someone solid. I'm really somewhat disappointed and surprised with how badly Van Dorn's season's gone. I know he's had issues and they've changed chassis and there's been all sorts of issues on his side, but... You know, he's the only one in the grid who's 12-0 in qualifying down to his teammate. It was only Canada where he was 9,000th or 7,000th behind. Yeah. That, he was, that he was bang on. But you know, the sec- what's really surprised me and slightly disappointed me is the fact that the second half of last year, he looked really good. Since I thought Silverstone, you know, when he first out-qualified Alonso last year, I thought his confidence picked up. And then he carried the momentum in the second half of the year. I thought he was actually much closer to Fernando than I perhaps expected him to be uh, and the logic would then suggest that he's going to build on that and be there but it just it hasn't happened for him this year well he's been 
he's well he's not been close enough or or indeed the other way beating Alonso this season he's been told by McLaren he need, they want to see him beat Alonso more personally I think unless something dramatic happens I think Van Dorn's out the exit door at, at, oh yeah at no I agree yeah um but the, the the thing that I became aware of a few weeks ago is I think his uh, Van Dorn's record against Alonso in terms of pure pace is actually really good if you compare it to Alonso's teammates in the past Van Dorn actually stacks up really well the problem is when you have it, it it doesn't matter if you're 0.1 of a percent closer to Alonso than any teammate has ever had. If if you're constantly plus 0.2 well, percent or zero. something like that, yeah. So so if you're always on a positive, if I I, I don't know, like I'd, I'd probably rather be uh, over the course of a season a little bit further away, but beat him more, more times than zero than I would be closer as an average and and, and never beat him because you're always you're only going to consign yourself to a number two role. It's it's a funny one for Carlos Sereno because I think the the rear tire deg issues in the races in particular he hasn't fully got on top of it. I think on a on a long race run, clearly Renault have got this rear blistering rear tire deg issue they've had all season. We often see them run a higher a harder tire compound, don't we, than than everybody else. I think Hulkenberg is perhaps able to manage that better. But the other thing with Carlos is that you you don't often see him make that jump in lap time between Q2 and Q3. He, you know, most people find that extra two or three tenths. And I've noticed on more than one occasion, Carlos has actually been quicker in Q2 than he's been in Q3. I don't, I haven't got the stats to exactly how often. Um, but, uh, and I think there have been a few occasions where he he's sort of under-delivered in that final part of qualifying and it hasn't worked out for him. I think that's also indicative of a driver who's probably struggling a little bit with Hulkenberg's pace, which I don't think he expected to be so strong. I think he went into Renault expecting to be able to assert himself as the team's lead driver. And then he he was yep. thinking it would be, if Red Bull don't want me, I'll be Renault's team leader rather than being oh, yeah, <laughs> sort no, of refugee I mean, we're, we're, having, to go to, having to go to McLaren. Yeah, we'll come back to that. But I think that's going to be um, a thing for Daniel as well. I think, uh, you know, this it's a risky move that, that Daniel's made because if he gets blown away by Hulkenberg or even if he gets marginally beaten by Hulkenberg, that's enough to make it a, a slight question mark, isn't it? And I guess the other question is what McLaren does with the with the other seats. They've got Sykes as their established, effectively, lead driver. We don't expect them to keep Van Dorn. And personally, I'd like Van Dorn to wash up maybe at Toro Rosso or Sauber or have a chance to have another go because we, we know how good he is. But what do you think they'll do for the second seat, Karim? They've got to say knock on, haven't they? I th- you know, if you look at the drivers who are experienced uh, on the market, Ocon's now left behind when you know the merry-go-round is slowing down and he's obviously been biffed off the force india seat and he's now got uh you know he's he's missed the chance at Renault because ricardo's sort of grabbed it last minute um, he's he's on the market and you know he's he's clearly very very quick i think he's proven that he's now a very good solid Midfield driver. Well, if you look at him this year, even though he's a point behind Perez, he has actually outperformed Perez overall this yeah. season in qualifying and overall on on race performance. I mean, he's nine three in qualifying to Perez. That's not insignificant for a guy who's much less experienced than Perez. So, to me, he I think it'll be really a, a shame. In the same way that I think it would have been a shame if Sainz didn't end up with a seat for twenty nineteen. Equally, I think it'll be a shame if Ocon doesn't end up with something for twenty nineteen. I think uh, it would be. I th- Corinne touched on this earlier, but I think it would be a gamble if they went for someone like Norris, and they clearly don't have the faith in in Van Dorn. We um, we we understand that Norris is going to be driving 
uh, in FP1 for McLaren at the next two Grand Prix, Belgium and Italy. So they're clearly looking at him. They'd be stupid not to use their reserve driver. He's fighting for the F2 title. He's very quick. I wonder, as I wonder though, if uh, Van Dorn's performances have hurt Norris's cause almost because obviously promoting Van Dorn to replace a, a world champion in in, in in Button that was that's quite a big deal. You don't go for an established outsider. You promote from within, and it's not quite worked. So if you've got someone like Ocon on the market. Um, a little bit of a tongue twister uh, you would obviously I think you would have to go for them even if you've got someone who you think could be as prodigious a talent as people think Norris will be one day then if you've got the chance of Ocon now we know that admittedly he said this before Alonso's future was set but Norris has already admitted himself to be open to driving in FP1s next year ahead of a 2020 graduation so you know you're not going to massively irritate your young talent and send him somewhere else so it makes sense in my eyes for them to go for Ocon. I can see them putting Norris in for some races in place of Van Dorn this year. I could see them using a few because they're not fighting for the world championship. They're not fighting for for any you know great position. So I can see McLaren using some opportunities, perhaps when F two aren't running, to stick Norris in for a few races and just evaluate him for next year, uh, and then make a decision after that. But all that said, I, I fully agree with you. You know, you got. I think when Ocon's on the market, it's a bit of a no-brainer. I think in some ways. But would, but would that be on the market as a driver to be fully owned by McLaren or a driver to be loaned from Mercedes? Because Mercedes still obviously see him as a long-term. Oh, he'd only go on loan, wouldn't he? Yeah, think. he'd only be on. Loan. But but either way, I think in, in McLaren's situation today, they they've got to have a full reset. I mean, we're, we're we're only talking about the driver market here, but there's a much bigger problem going on in McLaren. Clearly, you know, they spent several years believing that they had the best chassis on the grid. Well, I don't know about believing, but they publicly <laughs> said that they had the best chassis on the grid. This year has clearly proven otherwise. Um, I spoke to Jonathan Neal on our Channel 4 broadcast at Silverstone, and he uh, it was the first time I heard someone from the senior McLaren management saying, we're going to do things with a degree of humility now and, and have a full reset and a think on how we go forward. And You say, we're going to be the most... Humble team on the grid, <laughs> maybe gold trouble. Uh, but uh, and I, and I think in some ways, you know, they need experienced drivers. They don't need another question mark of of a rookie driver. They need two drivers who they know uh, have the ability to race and be competitive and score points solidly in Formula One and qualify in Q three when the equipment is there, which clearly Ocon and Science are. And I think they just need to to first sort out, get their home in order before they start putting in. Any rookies? We've got this, um, we, or we've had this stunning summer of, of news, and a lot of it has been been driver market based. But it is, as Corinne said, that that merry-go-round is starting to slow down now. So if we think that it's going to be, we know it's signs plus. It looks like one of Norris and Ocon. It looks like the reason Ocon is aiming for that is because it's probably going to be Stroll and Perez at Force India. Now Lawrence Stroll's led that consortium to say Force India, Renault set. Red Bull, Pierre Gasly announced as Max Verstappen's teammate for next year. Which actually isn't a soon. surprise because it was clear. I mean, they they were feeling that should Ricardo do something in their mind, stupid and go and sign somewhere else, that Gasly was at the front of the queue. Yeah, he emerged very quickly as the as, as the favourite as a possible replacement. So we're now getting to that point where stragglers feels like the harsh way of putting it, but it is those final few places because someone like someone like Haas. It's like it's going to be Kevin Magnussen plus one other. So there's a f- there's a few guys that the the interesting thing is there's too many drivers in the slots that left no, to be but, filled. But I think there's still one key move left, which is the Raikkonen seat. You know, I I you know we've all 
there's been this huge wave of rumors across the paddock between Hockenheim and Germany after Sergio Marchionne passed away that Raikkonen was now going to keep his seat. How this wave of rumors came across the the paddock um, it, well, there's still, there's uh, still know, a not, sto- nothing's actually been confirmed one way or the other, and I, to me, that's still one big seat left because that is a potential world championship contender seat. Well, there's a lot of people within Ferrari who like having Raikkonen in there, and I'm sure that because Marconi was basically behind the the plan to axe Raikkonen and bring Charles Leclerc in, so obviously his loss changes everything. So it's interesting to see how much of that is based upon what's actually going to happen, how much of it is people pushing for it, because there's been big seismic changes there in, in Ferrari. And I, I don't know, maybe they've just said to the team, right, do whatever, do whatever you want to do. We've got other things to think about. But I can't imagine it'd be top of the list of the things to tackle. So I imagine no. it's just, and it's not like Raikkonen's going to get poached by Red Bull, is it? So they can they can afford to be a little bit patient with it. Yeah, they can. But I, I to me, I still wouldn't call it... Uh, quits on the the driver medical round till that one's locked no, into place. I agree with that. It, I think it, that's and, that's still a key seat. And Raikkonen's frustration. He's got a reasonable amount of points this year, but every weekend it's either it's oh I made a mistake in one corner on my qualifying lap, or I didn't push hard enough in that same corner on the second run. There are multiple races where you could say, well, he was in a position to win. Austria, for example, he made that mistake on the first lap and let Verstappen get past him. That was effectively the race winning move. Germany had he not had that confusion while going around the house and gone off. He'd have been ahead of Bottas. He could have stayed out, held trap position, maybe won. But we keep having this with Raikkonen. It's if, 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 if. And the know? Q3 mistakes. How many yeah, times exactly, have you yeah. and I seen each other on a Saturday evening and gone, what happened to Kimi in that final run of Q3? Oh, there's a mistake in Baku when he should have had Paul. Bahrain, he should have had Paul. Silverstone. Silverstone, yeah. You know, We were discussing the other day that the uh, the twisted irony in Raikkonen season is that the, the one race... Where, where he wanted to be the underwhelming Ferrari what happened to be Australia where he was actually the quicker of the Ferraris and that stopped him being in a position to jump Hamilton in with the virtual safety car but he, he is frustrating yeah that obviously the, the second Ferrari seat is, is, is huge but while this massive sort of mess of a driver market situation has sort of been waiting to be resolved that sort of Ferrari thing sort of to me has operated in its own little isolated bubble because it only really affects uh, Ferrari and Sauber because we think that it'll be okay you've got three drivers you've got Raikkonen, Leclerc and Antonio Giovinazzi so two of those are in contention for the Ferrari seat any one of the three apparently could end up at, at Sauber so that one seat at Sauber's fixed basically it's a Ferrari seat then they've got whoever they put in the second one so it, it is super significant how much it actually impacts on the rest of the driver market it's a bit sort of it, I guess it depends on who who, if anyone, they put at Salba, and then who Salba then wants to put into the second seat. Um, I'm not sure about that, because let's say, for example, they decide to keep Raikkonen. If you are Haas, and you're, again, a Ferrari-affiliated team, why would, if you were Gunther Steiner, would you not be on the phone asking for Charles Leclerc? Because potentially he's, he's going to be better than Grosjean. Well, I would personally, but we know that Steiner was a bit hesitant about Leclerc 12 months ago admittedly that was about putting him in as a rookie but we also know that Haas has this really fixated loyalty with Grosjean so the, my my feeling is and I, I don't feel as strongly about this with Grosjean as I do with Kimi because Grosjean you still get those phenomenal peaks like in Austria but it just feels like Grosjean really only needs to do a couple of things over the rest of the season just to make them go oh okay then and then they re-sign him for and, next and he year. has at least gone into the break with three points finishes in four so he's he's kind of arrested that uh, arrested that decline do you think that Haas would be a step up 
from Sauber next season, given the progress we've seen from Sauber, the investment, all of this, the the fact that they do their own stuff. So in theory, presumably there's more potential than there is for, for, for Sauber than Haas. So do you think Leclerc is better off moving to Haas or? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you look at it last year, uh, just looking at the average qualifying, Haas were the ninth best team last year, 2.7 off pole. This year, they're actually the fifth best at 1.8. And this doesn't include the Hungarian race where we are the wet qualifying. So if Haas have moved, let's say, 0.9% closer to the pace, Sauber moved from 4.0 to 2.7. So they've moved 1.3%. Now, it's diminishing returns closer. The pace you get is harder to move. Plus they had that the engine boost as well. Yeah, the engine boost. Yeah. So I think in the end, I think it's... For next year, I'd still say, I'd say, I'd probably say Haas are going to be ahead of Sauber. Plus, you'd have him against Magnussen, so you get to rate Ferrari from a Ferrari perspective. Yeah. You see him against a, with all due respect to Marcus Ericsson, a proper teammate. So yeah, so I think uh, I, I, I mean, I'm, I know I'm sitting a. Uh, in front of Sauber's UK fan club president here, Ned Straw. No, Scott Mitchell's very much taken that honour this oh, year. I, su- I succeeded him at the start of the year. God, you two really spend way too much time together. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think in the short term, I'd, I'd still probably say Haas next year are going to be ahead of Sauber. Two years' time, who, you know, you're absolutely right. The, the upward trend we've seen from Sauber this year has been really impressive in the first half of the season. They've, they've really. And it's been nice to, make, to see them make bold moves in terms of strategy, in terms of, um, you know, just just solid progress as well. Bring the updates and they work, and which wasn't always the case in the past. Well, the, re- the thing that I really like about that is, um, first of all, it's quite good to see Fred Vassar in a situation in F1 where he can sort of show what he's capable of in terms of leading and building a team. But the real relief for me has been having a, a competitive car for Leclerc. Because I think everyone was super excited to see what he could do. But if they were in a similar situation to last year, or imagine if they were in the situation that Williams is in this year, and you're just you're adrift enough of the midfield to barely be in the fight, then we wouldn't be raving about Leclerc. We wouldn't be saying, oh, I really want to see him in a Ferrari next year, like if that's possible. So that's, for me, that's been the big win of, of Sauber. And, and we, we have obviously spoken a bit about the Leclerc, Raikkonen and Ferrari situation, but the opportunity to to see Leclerc in a Ferrari. This conservatism that has just led to Kimi being re-signed for another year for, what, three years in a row now? Because the first, the first deal we had was one plus one, wasn't it? And then since then, he's been on a fresh one-year deal each time. But it's just boring now. I just I just want them to do something something different. When when um, the, the rumours first emerged about Leclerc replacing Reichel, and there was even talk about him doing it after the summer break. Now, we're not expecting to go to Spa and see Leclerc in the, in the Ferrari, but... I think everyone is hoping rather than expecting that he'll be in that car next year, isn't, aren't they? Yeah, I think, and I think it'll be merited as well. What I'd like to see is Kenny Raikkonen do the second half of the season, get get a win. I'd like him to. I'd like to see him get a, a sort of farewell. Spa, win. listen, Spa is one of his Cracking, circuits. Exactly, you know, yeah. He's always been good at Spa, and that 2009 season where he was pretty miserable. He, you know, he really didn't like the car, didn't get on with it. Uh, they it was had, a horrible. It was a horrible car that. with the curves. Yeah, it just didn't work. Really well. It just wasn't a good car. But when it counted on that uh, Sunday at Spa, he delivered the win, didn't he? Yeah, past physicality uh, to say victory. So yeah, that that would be an appropriate place given how important that uh, that circuit's been to him. But uh, yeah, I mean we'll, we'll work through over the next few weeks. I guess we'll get a few more pieces in place, and then it'll be down to the the stragglers. I guess who are fighting over the like you've been among the stragglers in F one uh, driving market. What's that like when you're 
phoning well, around the few, the few. You, so what, what do you do if you're a, a driver chasing a, a well in any market you know it's it's the same in in any category whether you're in gp2 or f2 as it's called now or whatever category you're in you're just constantly having to watch the piece in the puzzle and constantly um, you know i think that there's two different approaches that drivers tend to take one is the proactive one where they get on the phone and get off their bum themselves and go make the phone calls or have the conversations. Which I imagine was what your approach was Absolutely. even back then. Yeah. Uh, or, or you have the ones that just say, well, let my managers sort it out and we'll see where we end up, which I'm never in favor of. Because at the end of the day, it's your life and it's your career. And as much as the managers are there to do the best for you, it's, you know, if it doesn't work out, they'll still carry on with their lives. They'll have other drivers and they'll get on with their lives. It's, but you're, you're the one who'll be in the mess. So, um, you know, I think the proactive approach is is normally the one that pays dividends. If you look at drivers in in the past, but it's a tricky time because you're, you know, the the Ricardo move would have caught Ocon off guard a little bit. You know, he he would have been in a situation where he thought it's pretty much a done deal, and you start to get emotionally invested in it. You know, you start. I'm sure at the end of qualifying, he was starting to look at where the Renaults were relative to the pace, and you know, you already start thinking ahead. And suddenly he's had the, you know, the the sort of thing pulled from just beneath his feet. And he's now scrambling to ensure he gets himself into a McLaren, which, you know, who who would have said this? But, you know, today going to McLaren is a step back from Force India. And 10 years ago, when Force India came into F1, you would never have said that because McLaren were the top, top team 2008. Um, you know, who would have thought? Ocon having to take a step back to, to Force India. And, and it shows how, in here, so. and it also shows how volatile everything is. Like not so long ago, the prospect that you could have Science and Ocon at McLaren and Ricardo at Renault all seemed pretty, pretty fanciful, doesn't it? These things do change, and like you say, there's there's very quick knock-on effects that can transform whole landscapes. Yeah, I mean, should we talk about the Ricardo Renault thing because we haven't really talked about it today? I know you've you've done well. Let, let's let's hear what what you thought about it because it, it, I mean, it came as a surprise to. Pretty much everyone, I imagine, yourself included. I mean, I knew they were talking about it, and I, I understood that on the Friday of Budapest, somebody, a little bird, told me that there was a big meeting uh, on the Friday in Paris to discuss whether he was, they were going to be able to afford to pay his big check. I, I'm not sure he's made the right move. Uh, I'd like to be proved wrong, because I think it'll be an exciting story for F1 to see Renault and Ricardo come up. Um, but Ed, I think you wrote a very good piece actually about how that doesn't sound not- very likely. <laughs> uh, but no, you wrote a good piece on how um, history is really not on his side. If you look at people who have tried to go and, and rebuild, yeah, which was basically triggered by me being annoyed by people making the Hamilton to Mercedes comparison because yeah. I don't feel it stands no, completely up. Completely not. Well, certainly yeah. not. As soon as you look at it close up, maybe from a distance, it looks the no. Same. The, the, the the Hamilton to Mercedes move was completely different to what's going on today. And you're absolutely right. People have gotten all muddled up all over Twitter saying this is inspired. And I think, you know, I remember Frank Williams telling telling me uh, at that time when Williams had done a deal with Mercedes for the for the hybrid power unit saying he'd visited Brixworth and he, he knew just how far ahead they were or he could feel just how far ahead they were. And he knew they'd be the benchmark when the hybrids arrived in 2014. And if, you know, if you would imagine that Ross and Nicky were trying to sign Lewis at that time, they shared all of that information for him. So he went there with a really 
good idea of how much money and how much resource and, and, and the way the rules are going to change. I think the Ricardo situation is completely different. You know, they haven't, Enstone haven't won a race now in five years. And it, it's, they haven't had a podium in a little while. It's a very, very different step. And people have also compared it to what Michael did in 96 going to Ferrari. But again, totally different. You know, at that time, Ferrari basically gave Jean Dodd an open checkbook to sign the best driver and then went to him and said, right, you bring all the best people that you know that you've won the last two championships with. And it still took them five years to win the driver's title. And it was already, it was a team, they won a race in 94, they won a yeah. race in 95, there were consistent points finishes. The, and the, the, the days of not 92 and to a lesser extent 93 when they were really struggling yeah. were, were behind them. Todd had put them on that, that upward curve. I think it was Manny Cole 93 he came in. Yeah. And so you see that. I mean, Renault's on an upward curve, certainly. And I'd like to think with the history of Enstone, the other sort of the the qualities of that team are still kind of there that, and, and should re-emerge. And I'm, I'd like to see them do well, but it's it's a it's just such a big risk to jump from yeah. a winning car into a non-winning car. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. It really doesn't often work out, does it? I think, um, and, and it, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see if it's now going to put a lot of emphasis on how much money Renault, the factory, can can in, invest into the Formula One operation. Uh, ironically, Renault. probably less now that they're paying Ricardo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, possibly. I mean, uh, you know, you never know with these big organizations. You know, there's always a deal within a deal and a secret budget somewhere and a, some sort of sponsor that they could sign based on signing a top line driver. And you know, you you look at when McLaren signed Fernando. You know, they got Santander as a, you know to do the Spanish connections to effectively fund his and Pedro's salaries. So um, there's always those sort of opportunities there. But yeah, I, I think for, what I don't get from his side is. He could have waited two years. He could have signed a two-year deal at Red Bull. And in two years' time, Enstone would have had him anyway. So I, I, I don't I, know why he's jumped now when he could have maybe had two years at Red Bull. Well, it's getting away from Verstappen, isn't it? I think it might be yeah. as simple as that. And, and, and as you said, there's that chance to put himself in pole position if Renault does then emerge as a 2021 candidate. He's there. He's embedded in the team. Personally, I agree with you. I think he's... Uh, I, I'd like to be proven wrong because he's a he, he's a good guy, great racing driver, and F1 would be a much better place if he's in a title-winning position. He's got to have a shot at the championship one day. Does it he deserve it? Yeah, yeah he'd, he'd be a great and but, a great character to have up there as well. But to your point, I was just looking at the stat there. He's been beaten six-zero by Verstappen ever since Max's wobble at Monaco. And I don't care what Max has said in the public, that I didn't change my approach. No, I've did, not yeah. changed my... Of course he has. Of course he's had... I watched down at the chicane at, at Montreal after the, the Monaco debacle that he had. And you could see, even from the outside, there was a slight change in his approach. There's still that attacking corner entry. There's still that flick of oversteer when he first turned the wheel. Still the aggression on the curb. But... He was at 95% rather than 110%. And I think that weekend it clicked in his head. He can be at 95% and still out-qualify Daniel. Then hang on a second. Why am I chucking around on the edge of an accident all the time? And since that, he's not been out-qualified by Ricardo. It's been it's coincided with some problems for Ricardo as well, hasn't it? So the momentum has properly shifted in that team. The big thing at the start of the year was, and this is where this sort of, 
groundswell of support for Ricardo came from externally was, hang on a second, the other guy's been given this massive lucrative contract, but at the start of the year, that guy's doing all the crashing and the spinning and all of this, and the the guy who you're not yet giving everything he wants is winning races and taking the fight to Mercedes and Ferrari. And then, as you say, since the nadir of Verstappen's season, he is he's properly bounced back from that. I think he went on, was it a free race podium streak afterwards? He won in, he won in third, Austria. second, first. Yeah, exactly. He? So he had, he, he properly stepped up. It was, and this is what was really annoying about the way he dealt with that because it was like, okay, this is literally what everyone was asking you to do and you've done it. So I don't understand why you're being like so so difficult about it because you've done yeah, what you're asked to do to the fernando alonso school of pr isn't he which is you just say whatever you want and then put it out there and expect people to believe it yeah, he just doesn't want to kind of admit there's been any change it's not a massive change it's not transformed his whole life no, it's not just at all. tiny tweaks like you said uh, like i said Karine. well that's given us a good overview of the big news stories of the of the summer and also the driver market situation so that's it for for part one of this podcast we're briefly going to break away to talk a little bit about the f1 2018 game and then we'll be back for part two with a look ahead to the second half of the season well we welcome now tom errington to talk a little bit about uh, a big moment in the uh, in the gaming world every year the release of the new f1 game is a big talking point f1 2018 is out august the 24th now tom you've had the chance to to play the game obviously you've played the previous iterations uh, they've been putting this game together for, for many years now so it's kind of a constant evolution i have to say having seen some of the the screenshots and the, the video it's uh, it's almost photorealistic isn't it so what can we expect from f1 2018 we touched on the two key points there, the photorealism, lots of tiny little tweaks, such as if you drop a wheel on the grass now, you're going to see a plume of dust. You're going to see the heat coming off the cars when you're driving. So there's lots of little details like that that just bring the presentation to life a little bit more. And particularly now we've got Liberty's graphics. It feels ever more like you're actually watching the race on a weekend. And then evolution is is where you'll really notice everything. So Handling has been upgraded again this year. They've used real F1 data, which they're quite proud of. And the way that manifests really is that if you're playing with quite a few assists, it's not going to feel different from last year. But when you start to progressively turn those off, you'll find that it's actually quite a different animal. So there's a lot more adjusting the car through a corner. It's not you plant your car at the beginning of an apex and you commit to that right or wrong. You have got the chance to really adjust mid-corner and that makes for quite a different experience particularly alongside an AI that, again, has had a real update to it. You'll find now that later in the race in particular, the the car in front will start to play it a bit safer, particularly if it's got a gap of three or four seconds. And that makes overtaking a lot more difficult because naturally they're drifting more towards the middle of the track. They're a little bit slower. So it's another thing for you to think about when you're plotting a move. And yeah, in in lots of little ways like that, it's a completely different game. But you're going to recognize a lot from last year as well i felt last year's game did have a bit of a step in those areas in terms of the feel of the car the car felt a little bit more weighty than in previous years it always used to feel a little bit too floaty for my liking although it wasn't wasn't perfect by any means and the ai seemed a little bit improved so is it is it kind of running with that direction from last year but just ramping up to make it much 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 better yeah very much so we're now sort of towards the end of this generation of console as well so we're finding the real limits of what we can do um and, and that shows in the game uh, you'll see it as well with things like the career mode. Again, the basis of a very, very good career mode came last year and we actually had some in-car development where the grid was starting to move up and down. Well, now they've introduced rule changes. So there might be a development that you've spent nine months of your season building towards and find out that actually that area now you've wasted your time because next year they're moving to more of a an aero-dependent formula or an engine-dependent formula. 
And equally, that can catch other teams out as well. So you're going to see a much more noticeable grid change in your 10-year career, which should solve a problem that we have a lot in the office. Glenn Freeman and I talk about this quite a bit as the game is in the office, and we find it's quite hard to stay in the career mode beyond a season or two, partly because of time constraints. Secondly, because it can be a little bit repetitive, but now that they've brought in those rule changes, that gives it a little bit more of an incentive to carry on. The fact you can skip practice sessions as well means if you're someone who's only going to have an hour or two to play, that's not a problem anymore. You can skip through it and still earn development tokens. Okay, not as much as if you sat down and did the hours and hours of development, but a reasonable amount that still means you can influence the development of a car as well. Does it have the sort of full tunability so that you can, you know, you still want to maybe set up your car or whatever, but not wedded to having to do hours and hours of, of practice? Yeah, I think this is where it's quite interesting with, with video games in motorsport is that so many people look at them for different reasons. So if you're someone who maybe in a set of course a Project Cars player, you're quite content to sit down for two hours and lap, lap after lap trying to find this perfect setup where F1 2018's got a bit more of a difficult task because it's got to appeal to those guys again. It's also got to appeal to the guys who are much more casual. So they do a really good job of that. You're able to very much take a car and drive and it's going to be stable straight out the box. But equally, if you want a car that's a little bit more loose or you know, suits your certain driving style, you can tweet, you can spend that time doing it as well. So certainly the makers of the game always think that's their biggest challenge. And I think they're at the point now where they're quite comfortable at meeting the criteria that every type of gamer will want. Always seems to have been a tricky balance that has had to be struck between trying to make it simulation, but accessible enough because a full-on F1 simulation, which sounds nice, would be very, very, very very time consuming yeah i think i think there's two things that people mix up and that's realism and immersion now having a realistic f1 car to drive and stuff and that there's a reason a lot of us don't drive an f1 car we're not good enough frankly and it's an extremely difficult we never had the opportunity <laughs> that, <laughs> that as well whereas you can make a game where it feels like you're in the seat of an f1 driver with the immersion little things they've added like having a journalist that will follow every step of your career and, and you know, still, they will try and get a response from you, that whether you want to play it as a sportsmanship or be a bit of a wild card in your responses as well. That adds another level to it. And lots of little things like that just help really build upon that immersion thing. What, what you want in terms of realism is very much down to the player. When it comes down to it, for all the, the bells and whistles and the visuals and all this, that and the other, the thing that really matters, you know, the word you used there was immersion. The, the best racing games for me is when you can go into a race situation and you you can almost, when, at their best, get into the kind of same feeling you get when you're actually racing a car, which I've done as an amateur fat midfielder. I think you made the big point there. It's online, particularly, where you feel that. You know, some of the recent releases like Project Cars 2, I'm, I'm not really interested in the career mode there. I much prefer doing the online racing and you're watching that car ahead make the mistake and you think, I can gain here or I'll break that little bit later. It's always going to be better than the AI, isn't it? Exactly. Well, certainly There's currently. That as well. And um, they've made a real push again, partly because F1 esports now is such a big, important thing. If you're going to put your game product on Sky Sports, you've got to make sure it works. We've seen what happens when that doesn't work. The Formula E Las Vegas race was a huge opportunity. And to be honest, it was a bit of a disaster with all the bugs and post-race penalties. And that was a problem F1 2017 had. I mean, a lot of people quite rightly got angry at the fact that when everyone finished a race, everyone was disqualified. There were bugs like that that were crazy. They've, They've put a lot of resource time and and build this network now where it should be a lot more stable a lot less bug filled and they've added a really good innovation which is like a super license so when you race online the way you behave how good you are is all calculated so that you can race against people of a similar ability and i think that's where you're going to have that that same feeling you talk about there where every little factor plays into it and you feel like you're in a proper real 
race that just grips you. So that should be a real step forward as well. And of course, this is the officially licensed game. So you've got all 20 teams, all the drivers there. So you can drive for Haas, Ferrari, Sauber, whoever you particularly want to. And uh, you can boot out whichever driver you don't like to replace them when you, when you play, which is, always a, which is always a good thing. I guess in terms of the actual fundamentals of the game, there'll be a few new bits and pieces. I guess Hockenheim's back because of the German Grand Prix. And Paul Ricard, that'll, that'll be new. Yeah, that's one of the good things with the sport games, isn't it? Is even though it should be one thing that's fairly immovable across many years, having tracks come, drivers go, teams go, is all great. So yeah, Paul Ricard's a nice challenge. Uh, it's a real. You can see why they've used it in a lot of the promotion material because of the strange runoff it has and the area it's in. It, it's really quite atmospheric, even though in a lot of ways it's quite bland as well. To drive it's quite fun, but it was quite interesting when we were doing the, the playthrough for a couple of hours was the amount of people that got to the chicane section and just got lost, bewildered by the various track configurations there. A little bit of that is because there's, there's a subtle ridge as you come up to it, and if you're not quite familiar with the track, you'll just have the reaction of turning left and taking a completely different track configuration. And, and in fairness, it is, I mean, that's what it's like there, because you can stood there trackside during F1 sessions today and you just have this sea of bits of track and red and white paint, and there's loads of different <laughs> configurations. So I can see why it would be that because that because it is slightly confusing yeah i mean even for like us who've covered events there and seen it many a time the first time you do go up to that chicane, you do quickly doubt yourself and then remember and lose a couple of tents trying to remember where you are but it's it's really enjoyable to drive there as well i had to go in one of the classic cars as well and it's great it's almost a bit like a testing track for that thing you do you're not going to be punished if you get if you go too far off the track so has a lot of uses there in the career mode it's a little bit messy when you try and say the career mode actually it's more messy in the online mode when you race other people because there's a bit of a runoff to it and you can cut corners and that sort of thing as well it can get a bit messy there but you know we want a bit of variety we want a bit of different challenges so it's a very good addition having Hockenheim back is great as well if you if you want an f1 game you want Hockenheim on there so it's nice to have that back as well and how about the classic cars that's been a, a popular feature what, what can we look forward to this time the depth is is fantastic now i think we had a really good toe in the water in F1 2017, we had a selection of cars there that were very enjoyable. Now we've got 20 of them, and they all have a really different feel to them. When we had the, the two hours of playing a preview of the game, I probably spent an hour and hour and a half of it with the classic cars. Um, it, it feels a little, little less gimmicky. Last year it was kind of in the career mode, doing time trials and that sort of thing as well. The fact you can do proper races, there's a bit more time and effort put behind it. It's great. I did ask about classic tracks and told that they are by far and away the most difficult thing they can do. So we're not going to see those for a while, I don't think. But the fact that you can relive, you know, F1 1976 with the Hunt and Louder cars is a really nice touch. Having fan favorites like the Braun GP in as well, it's showing that they're really listening to that community now and realize that we all really want classic cars in those games. It does look like it spreads the, uh, spreads the ears a bit because you've got the cars coming back which ranged from the 1988 McLaren MP44 to the 2010 Red Bull RB6, and then seems to be going more back to the 70s and very early 80s. You've got to 72D, McLaren M23, yeah. 76, as you mentioned. McLaren MP41B, 1982, that's an interesting choice. That'll probably be quite a fun a fun car, actually. Yeah, one, one of the, the game's designers was very excited about the chance to do that one as well. So it's a real feel. Everyone who works there is a fan, so you do see some of those quirky entries for example i mean i'd love to see some f1 cars from even earlier so maybe that's something we can see down the line so what's the kind of overall overall feeling is it enough of a step to justify those who've used 2017 to upgrade and is it maybe enough i, th- I think 17 probably brought me back to this series of games a bit more after i'd sort of lost interest a bit D- does it have that potential for if people haven't played it for a while to have a bit of a look at it and maybe find it's doing more for them yeah i think so i was similar to you in that i kind of lost my way a little bit with them they felt a little bit repetitive a little bit restricted and 17 was a huge step forward 
And to the point that we all sort of discussed it as, well, what can they really do now? But actually, in the key areas that people are going to buy this game for, online, career mode, they've made a big step forward and there's more classic cars. So you're looking at a bigger and better F1 2017 and... That, for me, makes it a totally worthwhile purchase. Okay, well, as we said, it's out on August the 24th, available for Xbox, PlayStation, and, and Windows PC, so uh, all the major platforms covered. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, picking up a copy and seeing if I can uh, keep up with you online, which has been a bit of a bit of a challenge in the past. Corinne, did you, you have a, a gamer in your time? Uh, I used to play the Grand Prix games, the old Jeff Crammon games, GP234, Um Actually, we we used to play back in India a lot. Narayan Kartikeyan and I used to play Quali Labs. And we'd have our own secret setups with, you know, the very small niche of people, I think, used to spend that amount of time on car setup stuff. But we loved it. And we'd be changing like 0.25 millimeters of the front packer and making sure you got the right front bar and spring to get it in the right window. And we, we were only, it's weird, actually. We had certain circuits which we would play a lot. Um, Indianapolis. Monza, Silverstone, um, Suzuka was another one. We had, we had probably six or seven circuits that we played a, a hell of a lot, I remember. And uh, never with a steering wheel either. We only played on the keyboards. So you had A and Z for accelerator and brake, space bar to go up and down the gears. So if you had, you know, if you had the accelerator on and space bar would go up, if you had brake and space bar would go down. So same key, which is a bit confusing. Uh, and yeah, we just played with the keyboard and, you know, you'd have to modulate the brake and get the brake balance just right and uh, played hours of it. We, I think one day, we I remember playing eight or nine hours of it straight and my mum just thought we were insane. I love the idea that, what will this be, I guess, 20 odd years ago, you're, we're, talk, uh, we're talking... This, Grand Prix 4, the, the game was slightly, 2000. Yeah. Yeah, the, okay, the game so was based on 2000. So yeah, it is 18 so last, years so ago. So last few years before we came. I just love the idea that India's two Grand Prix drivers <laughs> were sat there on Grand Prix... Grand Prix 3, Grand Prix 4, fiddling with setups. Yeah. And that's, a, and that's a brilliant So basically set. what you're saying, Karun, is that you and Noreen actually pioneered esports as a training ground for Grand Prix drivers. See, if, we, if we'd if done that, then we could be earning a fortune. We should have earned a fortune. I haven't. Instead, I'm doing a free autosport podcast. And having to... In fact, you're a, you're a pay... I'm like bringing my own cake to the autosport podcast. <laughs> you're a pay podcaster. You know, you know you're how to... A, you know you're, you're, a, you're a pay podcaster. I'm a that paid is, podcaster. That is, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's just... It shows how motorsports got out of control, doesn't it? Well, well, let's get let's get back to the, the matter at hand. Uh, amusing as that image of, of you and Noreen spending hours uh, on Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton goes into the second half of the season with a pretty improbable in many ways 24 point lead largely courtesy of his wet performances in Germany in the race and Hungary in qualifying does that make Hamilton and Mercedes favourites do you feel Corinne? I think on paper I still I find it very difficult to bet against Lewis and Mercedes as much as they've had all sorts of strategic mistakes this year I think They've had weekends where they've conclusively been outperformed and outpaced by Ferrari. But ultimately, in the big picture, Seb's made three mistakes. You know, when it comes to the actual, you know, scoring the points on a Sunday. And Lewis hasn't. You know, okay, Baku, Seb went for the lead and arguably would have, he could have finished second there behind Bottas. But then Bottas had the puncture, so he probably would have won there. Um, you know, Ricard, he clearly made the mistake. And then obviously Germany, the big one. So, and Lewis hasn't. Lewis hasn't really made those big driving errors on a Sunday. And ultimately, when we get to Abu Dhabi, I think that's that's could be the difference. I think um, I think the problem for me with with Vettel and Ferrari is that. 
they they do go they did go into that summer break with with the twenty four point deficit despite having the, the the faster car and okay we might go to Spa and if uh, Mercedes don't introduce an engine upgrade there and and for, we know the Ferrari that they're going to have theirs that's probably going to put them make them Monza. Fa- yeah so it's going to make them favourite for for Spa if not. Um, if not Spa and Monza, so for me those two races are key because that offers them a chance to to switch the m- momentum of the title battle. If they if they if they don't make inroads on those two races, I think we then get into sort of Hamilton territory. We know that he's he can be absolute un- unreal over the second half of the season. When Hamilton's got that bit, bit between his teeth and he's he's got those titles in his sights, he can be pretty unstoppable. So I feel like they if Vettel and Ferrari are going to capitalise on them having the overall faster package, they need to come out the blocks absolutely flying after the summer break. And I think that's where Kimi, you know, they've shown now since Hockenheim, Kimi's clearly the number two. And and rightly, you know, they're in a tight world championship battle here. They can't afford to be wasting time and points. I mean, I, personally, I believe they wasted too many laps before they switched them around in Hockenheim where Seb was sitting behind Kimi. He should just switch him straight away and let Seb go. But, you know, I think if Kimi can finish second behind Seb at the next two races, then even if, let's say, assuming Lewis third, that 24 points becomes, tw- becomes you know, 10 and 10. It comes down to four at the end of Monza. And that you're absolutely right there. This is their golden opportunity to to sort of arrest that momentum slide. I think the worrying thing is, though, for if you're Ferrari, is that if you look at just the car performance over the first part of the season, Mercedes have found it harder to get the best out of the car in terms of the pace, as well as the strategic blunders that have cost them some points. They've also lost lost out to just not getting the car working, the tyres working, weekends like China, for example. And it feels to me like Ferrari have, by and large, managed to get the car working well. And it, I always feel, when, particularly when you're in a close battle like that, it's about making sure you get the most out out of your package and the most out results and Mercedes has done that better than than Ferrari and I think also if you go into that because for example Vettel could win the next two races but Hamilton's still got the world championship lead and that'd be hugely beneficial from his perspective in that Hamilton can think well actually if I pick up a couple of third places it's not completely the end of the world because I'll still be I'll still be within range and I think that does slightly change his mindset we know how he gets onto these sort of waves up upward curves and downward curves and while I don't think it'll it'll kind of interrupt the upward curve of winning those two races against the run of play before the break if he doesn't have a great spiral monza i don't think it'll trigger as big a a downward spiral should we say so it's it's all about just having that that little gap isn't it that little advantage at the front hamilton's been sort of i I reckon as good as i thought he was going to be this year the thing with vettel that surprised me is he's actually a bit weaker than i thought and obviously you guys have followed him a lot closer in recent years so maybe you saw this side of his game but when I when I watched him obviously sweep to those titles at Red Bull and he overcame those brilliant challenges from Alonso in a couple of times in ten and and twelve and then dominated in eleven and thirteen and we've seen mistakes from him since especially when he was under the cosh at Red Bull in fourteen and Ricardo came out as his first year and was winning races so we've seen him we, we've seen mistakes in Vettel we've we've seen him make some silly blunders but I really didn't expect it this year the, the way it has when he I thought when he had that chance. I thought that right now we're going to see that top tier Vettel, that elite guy who just switches into this ridiculous beast mode, and, and and is unflappable. But he actually he does seem to have a little bit more fragility mentally or something that that Hamilton doesn't quite have. I, I just see it as that there's there's moments of overload when 
there's there's pressure involved. Like the French Grand Prix, you look at it, I think at the start there, he knew his only real chance was to get ahead of one of the Mercedes at the start. And I think that it wasn't that he was trying to, because he wasn't, but I just think it distracted him from, as soon as there's a driver, your kind of mind just slips off 100% kind of what you're doing at that point. That's when weird mistakes happen. Um, you know, Backer, we probably saw that as his one chance to overtake. That was a fairly minor mistake. He went to the inside, hit that bump and locked up. It happens. And remember Hamilton in that race locked up on his first set of tyres and knackered his strategy. He was very lucky to win that race. But, and I think the same, uh, you see the same in a, in a different manifestation at, at Hockenheim because when it's wet, slicks in the wet, you know, he's perfectly capable of performing in those conditions. But you just kind of, that's the point where you just need to let, your baseline skill as a driver, your ability to feel the grip levels kind of take over and not think about what you're doing, not worry about what's going on behind the race situation or whatever, but just drive the track that's ahead of you. And I think sometimes Vettel gets distracted from that. And I think Singapore start last year was perhaps an example of that because he knew that was a big chance. And as soon as he made a, and if he start in, in second gear, he kind of tried to overcompensate rather than just thinking right now, I've just got to do the start, the rest of the start as well as I can. He just... And Baku, the road rage in Baku as well last year. Yeah, just, yeah, it, it, it's just a little win, but it's amazing because I, I, drivers generally always get, <laughs> do get better as they go. In many ways, Vettel would have got better, but when you look at him in this Red Bull pomp, the ability he had to adapt his driving to make those cars basically have more downforce than they should have done through the way he, he used the throttle, the exhaust blow, it was absolutely remarkable. It was well beyond, you know, a driver was, tremendous as Mark Webber who was a tremendously quick Grand Prix driver couldn't do the same thing he couldn't adapt in in the same way so it's strange Vettel but I just do feel when it comes down to those kind of high stress key critical moments usually Hamilton as long as he's in the right place mentally and 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 in a good way generally comes out of them better just because he can just has that better ability just to drive it like it's like it doesn't like it's not so important almost he doesn't he can just drive the situation I think it's going to be fascinating because, you know, I think we're all in pretty much in agreement that the next two circuits, unless there's a big Mercedes upgrade, should favor Ferrari. Singapore, could Red Bull come into play? I think it's... Uh, they see it know, as their second best circuit after Monaco. Yeah, and I, but I think they've been caught out a little bit by the steps forward that Mercedes and Ferrari have taken because in you know, Budapest, they should have been much closer to the pace. In the end, they weren't. They were, they were miles off. And I think, you know, the drivers and Christian were all pretty disappointed. Obviously, they, they immediately pointed it to the engine and whether it's true or not is, 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 is debatable. But, um, Singapore should be a great opportunity for them. Even Suzuka, you know, last year, if you think about it, Max only finished two seconds behind Lewis in the race and Daniel was right there as well. You know, Ferrari had the reliability issues with Seb on the grid, but, you know, the, the Red Bull could, could come into play with these um, championship battles. I think what we really have to hope is just that they do stay close. I don't really mind who wins a championship. I'd just rather it was close and it went down to the wire. You know, it's still, still open on like the last lap of the last races there. Well, it has the to, we needed to go to Abu Dhabi, don't we? we? We really need... We need them to go to Abu Dhabi three points or four points apart. Winner so takes all. It's a winner takes all. That's what we want. That would cap this season because for all of the complaints that the likes of Alonso throw at F1 and F1, it does still feel like F1 comes under siege even this season. And yes, we've been lucky because a lot of races have been spiced up because of safety cars rather than actual proper on-track action. But it has been a good season. Um, a Hamilton versus 
Vettel Mercedes versus Ferrari title fight. That that is proper. That is as, as cool and legitimate a battle as as we see in in, in F one. And, and how close it is. They are, you know, they're kicking lumps out of each other both on track and off track. That that's the the pace of development. You see two top teams driving each other. So. Yeah, it's amazing. So if this goes if this goes the distance, if it goes right down to the last race, I think we will look back at this, and maybe it won't be it won't be looked back on with a sort of like a romantic kind of oh my god that was so amazing just wheel to wheel they were it was so good maybe there won't be one of those one flashpoints where you have like oh we didn't see lewis and, and vettel going wheel to wheel down the hang- hangar straight with sparks flying or anything like that but-, but but we did though i mean like silverstone this year we had the top four drivers from the two best teams battling for the leader grand prix we had it at baku and, and it uh, it was really i mean i've gone on various twitter rants and then just opened myself up for a load of abuse from people because i'm sick to death of people saying how f1's you know f1's rubbish and blah 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 all these people you know just coming out slamming it without any real basis you know they're, they're all looking at the the early 90s or the late 80s with rose tinted glasses well, not like 92, you get Nigel Mansell on pole by at 1.9 to 2 seconds. Well, all the Schumacher course. years, yeah. you know, 2002, yeah. 2004. I mean, you know, people point to the 80s. Only the top four people used to finish on the lead lap. Yeah, the 1987 British Grand Prix was the first ever race that I've seen. One of the best races, you know, people often talk about. One of the greatest races. Yeah, Only the, four the cars finished on the people. lead lap. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's strange because you start to see previous seasons come through. Like 2010, I've seen people raise on social media. 2010 was a fascinating season. Yep. Uh, four-way battle, the title decider at Abu Dhabi, the famous Ferrari strategic blunder, Alonso yep. covering Weber, and then Vettel came through to win. That was a fantastic championship season, but the races, for the most part, were pretty poor. They were almost almost universally one-stoppers. They were the other two. Canada was the exception. And as for flipping gaps you know you were driving around half of that season in a shed at the back which is you know would make a williams look this year look fast no exactly and i think i think people need to keep perspective you know it's i think there's and also you know all these people comparing it to motor gp for example it's rubbish it's apples and oranges you know motor gp is fantastic i'm a huge motor gp fan i watch every single race absolutely love it it's hard not to, you know. It's, it's they've got a gr- great season, various manufacturers, blah blah blah. But they've got no downforce. They got, you know, probably three times the amount of space to move maneuver around the racetrack. It's just a totally different category of racing. It's like saying, you know, you prefer cricket over rugby or something. It's not even the same thing. There are certain I, elements I, of well, it. I think we can all safely say cricket is much better than rugby. <laughs> I don't you even, and I would. I don't even like cricket, and I would say it's better than rugby. Get that's, out. That, that's by the by. Um, the the thing with comparing F1 and MotoGP is I, I understand sometimes the, the practice of comparing certain elements. So uh, maybe the way a promoter goes about things in a certain way, the way uh, the rules are structured to give X, Y, and Z maybe a leg a leg up just to com- just to to level that competitive playing field. But what's really frustrating is when people do try and boil it down to the basic fundamentals of, well, I don't understand why MotoGP is able to have such good racing and F1 isn't. When you get down to that and you're being that 
that flippant about it, you might as well be comparing F1 to the Premier League. But then, oh, why can't we have a Leicester City win the title? Because it's 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 completely different. It is yeah. impossible to make that. The, the reason it's frustrating is yes, Formula One does have problems. The gap between the big three and the rest is a problem. The fact oh, it's yeah. class B, that's a problem. There is a problem with following and overtaking. So we're not trying to whitewash over that. But the trouble is when you get this kind of blanket sort of frenzied criticism that's when stupid decisions get made you know it wasn't so long ago that the whole solution to all f1's problems is i'll make the cars four to five seconds a lap faster and then sure enough as was but utterly that, that was predictable at the time yeah exactly you know but, that, that that was driven by people just listening to saying you know there's a certain section of the fan base who want the cars to be faster and that's going to be brilliant it's not, is it? It's going to make, you know, anybody, I'm not an aerodynamicist, neither the two of you, but we could have all sat there and gone, well, if you put, make the cars more aerosensitive, the racing's going to be worse. And if you get the cars to the point where they're going quicker through the corners and have shorter braking zones, overtaking's going to be harder. Yeah. And make the cars wider, there's less space to overtake. <laughs> there you go. It's almost like this was entirely preventable. <laughs> well, it, well, it was ultimately, but I think the important thing is you can't, I personally don't think it's very helpful to, you know, you can learn from the past, yes, but just looking to the past and say, oh, make it like a, a two-minute highlights reel of the best of 91. Well, that probably looks like the best thing ever. But, you know, we're, we're sitting here in sort of enjoying slash enduring, depending on what your perspective is, every but every kind of single a- day. So you, you have to you have to be realistic about what's achievable. And it is difficult with something like Formula 1. There's only 21 races in a year. You know, in the Premier League, we've got, what, 380 matches a, year, a season. So if 50 of them are, are nil-nils, then it, it, do- and Scott- it, do- it doesn't matter so much. But yeah. you, you've only got 21 shots at, at creating it. And yeah, you still look at ways of improving it, but try and understand the, the positives of what you've got at that moment and preserve them while improving the weak points. I think Scott's point about... What can we learn from other categories is really valid. So you take a step back and go, how have MotoGP arrived with these regulations that have allowed four or five manufacturers to be competitive? Are there lessons in that which are really practically trans, you know, transferable to Formula One? Because yes they, no. they, they have done certain things in terms of de-restricting certain aspects of those yeah. who are struggling. There are things you can at least look at. Yeah, but you can't copy them. No, because it doesn't it's, work. It's, and, and that's what I think people need to understand. Methodologies, you know, methodologies. We? <laughs> yeah, we've got massive off topic, but methodologies can be learned yes. from. It's like, right, well, what process did you go through to try and understand how to achieve that? And then maybe you can do that. But I've actually been really disappointed, actually, with what we've seen from the overall liberty approach, because I think it was quite, it looked like that they were going to really and look into it. There has been some good research in some areas. Some of the overtaking stuff has been good for the aero rules, but it feels to me like they've said, right, we're going to sit back and we're going to really set a long-term objective. And now we're suddenly starting to see, okay, well, we'll do this for 19 and we'll do that, that for 21. And, you know, various people in teams are now saying, well, they were saying they were going to kind of look at everything and then do it. But now we're starting to see these, the, the kind of old school kind of, well, here's a quick knee jerk, here's a quick knee jerk. Here's a quick knee jerk. Rather than trying to get that kind of whole pattern, where do you want to get to, and then work out where you want to get to, how you get there, and therefore how long it's going to take, and what are your interim steps? I spoke to three different technical bosses um, about the 19 rules in the last couple of race weekends, and all three of them came back with a less than positive answer as to how different overtaking is going to be. Well, which, it, it, which doesn't give me much cause for optimism because they're all fairly, fairly honest and. And uh, shall we say switched on team bosses? Well, again, those rules tackling one thing, which basically at heart it's down to the fact the 09 rules with the sort of snowplow front wings, they did narrow them a little bit for 14, but still not all the way back because that 
creates a need to outwash the air because you get tremendous drag off the wheels. You send it out around the outside of the car. And basically what you're getting is an interaction of that outwash effect with the rear wing creating velocities and then hitting the front wing of the car behind were a particularly nasty combination. And so they've understood that unintended consequences, they've created something that's made the following worse. And say, right, okay, we'll eliminate that. So you go towards inwash. But the trouble is, with the way it's researched, there's never, and understandably so, because you've got a huge number of people trying to work out how to tackle these rules and you can only spend a small amount of money researching it. But what are the consequences of the changes they've made? It's not going to be transformative. And I, and I think... It's very, very easy to pick off one problem here, one problem there. And all you're doing is, you know, there's, you know, sort of big, those big puzzles where you have like sliders and there's one space and you slide everything around and you kind of get one piece better, but that means you can't get another piece. I don't feel anyone's looking at the big picture of that. How's that for an analogy? That's brilliant. Make headlines in F1 2018, the official video game of the 2018 FIA Formula One World Championship. The most accurate and visually stunning F1 video game yet, featuring all official teams, drivers, and circuits of the 2018 season. F1 2018, the official video game, available from August 24th for PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC at shop2.net. Make headlines. So, in summary of our total rant, F1 2018's been pretty good. Championship battle's gone back and forth. We've had some decent races, haven't we? Yeah, I was, I was just hook. thinking in my, in my head that like, if you were going to pick like one thing from from each race, because I'm just looking at it from we've compared it to Mo- like we've looked at say the MotoGP example, and I said about the mistake of comparing it to football. But if you take a 90 minute football match, then you're going to have a lot of that is going to be not a great deal of action. Some matches can't be to and fro for the vast majority of the two 45 minute halves, but je- as a general rule, you might have half a dozen highlights across a and 90 minutes of just sort of like tactical to and fro. So if you look at it at the Grand Prix perspective, Australia, he had the win was stolen because of a mid-race safety car. We had Bahrain where it went right down to the last lap because of the different strategies. China, we had Ricardo's charge. Like you can pick something like and I, and I'm not stopping there just so, because so what I've you're run saying out, is it's pretty good to watch it on a channel showing highlights of Formula One. Maybe, maybe live coverage of Formula One isn't the be all and end all of following exactly. it this well, year. You've got, you've got to listen to that. You've got to listen Thanks, to that. Scott. That, that's that annoying analyst bloke. What's his name? No, of course. For those for those not in the UK, Karin Chandok is the the excellent. Uh, what are you officially the analyst? Analyst. Analyst for Channel Four's uh, Channel Four's coverage and uh, a very good job he does uh, too, as you'd expect. But yeah. Every race has got something that says, oh, yeah, that's the one where that happened or that happened or that happened. So, so that, that, yeah, there are storylines. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's the positive. You know, I don't want to sit here and say everything's been perfect, but, you know, we've got a proper battle here. And that's the, and that's the important thing. I just hope that it keeps going in the vein it has done. I'm a little bit wary about the fact that Mercedes has got a little bit of a, sort of a little bit of a break clear because that's 24 I mean, point lead. Seb's mistake in Germany is the difference, isn't it? That's 25 points, and then you take what Lewis wouldn't have scored, let's but, say, potentially. Uh, ultimately, if it doesn't rain in Germany and it doesn't rain in Hungary on Saturday, you've yeah. got Vettel sitting pretty on a, on, a, yeah. on a big lead. It shows how tiny things yeah, can yeah, make yeah, a exactly. difference. It, it takes, it's one DNF. One DNF will just turn the title on its head. So, no, I think in in summary, I think we've got a fantastic championship battle. And, and also, you know, both Raikkonen and Bottas are showing good form and good pace. They're in amongst the mix. they they may not be at the same level as the number ones, but they're certainly not out of it. Well, that's the big thing that Ferrari has in its favour that it didn't have last year when Vettel was going up against 
Bottas at the summer break was arguably the form Mercedes driver and then Hamilton came out swinging but both Mercs were in the fight. Vettel was kind of going up against them on his own and Ferrari's effectively fighting with one arm behind, tied behind his back this year. Raikkonen is, is just about in the picture to make life difficult for the others. So that, that, that's what we've seen. That's where we've seen Mercedes weakness is when, when there's that sort of extra, an extra car or two in play, the strategic decision has to be made and it's on a knife edge and they make the wrong call. And it just makes everything more interesting. And we, we are going into a second half of the season that is really nicely poised. And I, this, this might sound a little bit cliched, but I'm actually really pleased that we're starting off that, that the journey of the second half of the season at Spa and at Monza because we've got two absolutely cracking classic circuits to, to go to and, and, and kickstart this title battle. And I don't really think about this a lot, but I do think that that would be less if we were going to one of the sort of, um, you know, bland corporate, m- more modern circuits. I, I like the fact that we have these calendar, uh, the, these circuits still on the calendars. We can go there and I, I'd love, I'd love to have, you know the, the the first lap of the Belgian Grand Prix, the two title rivals blasting down the Kemmel Straight side by side. That'd be that. What an amazing image that'll be. And and if oh. F one can't sell itself off of what we're seeing at the moment, then it doesn't have a chance. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, the German Grand Prix. How can they not make that work? I don't get it. There must be something. I must be missing something completely commercially in their deal because they've got a, a German driver fighting for the World Championship. They've got a German team who was the top team in Formula One for the last few years. They are. You know, Hulkenberg with his own fan base there. The grandstands were absolutely rammed. I stood on the grid looking around and it was absolutely rammed. Well, that's the big difference is this this year they were rammed, whereas yeah. the last few Grand Prix have struggled to get that, that crowd. So, that's what I mean. I don't know how because so, Seb's, Seb's been around and so has Mercedes. Well, it's it, weird. It, well, it, it's just the uh, it's the hosting fee, isn't it, that's uh, caused the problems. But Yeah, whether it's it sounds like it worked, ticket but, prices yeah. being too high or whether they've not done a good yeah. job of promoting the event. I don't know really how much you need to do to well, promote it. had a good crowd so. this year, didn't they? Yeah, but, exactly. So. so hopefully that stays on the track, on, on the calendar for next year because we know everything's going on behind the scenes with the British Grand Prix and Silverstone's future. But if you've got this mega title battle, if you've got absolute world-class all-time greats like Hamilton and Vettel fighting wheel-to-wheel, if you go to all of the cool old tracks, if you bring in all the modern countries, for all of the ills that we try to find in F1, it is actually overall in, in, in a relatively decent place at the moment with the capacity to improve. It's just... I think what you sort of touched on it earlier, Ed, the sort of some of the decisions we've seen from Liberty or the inability to really go to town one way or the other. They need to sort of pull their finger out over the next few months because I think on track we've got a title battle that's going to be decided in the next few months. We've also got a key short-term and medium-term part of F1's future that needs to be decided as well. I think one other point that we need to perhaps talk about is the um, the Honda stuff that's gone on the first half of this year because it's been an important year for Honda. I think now they've... You know, they've stepped away from McLaren. They showed in Bahrain that they were able to deliver a result with Toro. So, I mean, you know, again, going back to my little qualifying table, you know, Toro Rosso and McLaren have exchanged engines, effectively. McLaren have lost 100 million rumored along the way. Last year, they were 2.42 off pole. This year, they're 2.49. So, they've actually gone, they're pretty much the same, call it 0.07. Toro Rosso last year, 2.64. This year, 2.63. So they swapped engines. There's 100 million gone from the McLaren's inflow. And they're pretty much where they were last year in relative to the pace. So the engine wasn't the answer, was it? It tallies with what Red Bull says about the Honda engine being within about 1% of, of the Renault unit at the moment. And we know that for, for all of Renault's problems, and I know that a few people have got 
uh, different issues with Cyril Abitable and that and that operation. But one of the things that Cyril is is, is he can be quite frank. And I he, quite, I like that. Yeah. yeah. And he and he admitted that they basically underestimated the development potential of this engine regulations. So what they've seen from Merck and in particular Ferrari this year, they've realised actually we need to be more aggressive on our development because there is more to find. We didn't think there was, so we maybe we invested a little bit less time or money into it, or we took fewer risks. And actually, there's more to come. So they've recognised that and they know that they need to make bigger steps and that will obviously be part of the argument they've they've made to Ricardo to, to come and join them. But from a from a straight Renault Honda perspective, Honda is now is now right right with them and, and making McLaren look is part of the reason McLaren looks so silly in the first half of the year is because we've had Honda score its best results since coming back into Formula One when they finished fourth in Bahrain. And then in Monaco and Hungary, Gasly scored another thing as seventh and a sixth. So they've had I think bigger peaks than than the McLaren this year, yeah, and it's I been mean, good for everyone there because obviously there, it's a it's a, cliche is it's a good bunch of guys, but actually Honda is an important element of F one, and if they can be successful again, then it, it only boosts F one. Well, I think you know that that was where I was coming to really is when you you know talking about the on track stuff has been great, it has, and I think having a third team in there will just completely you know, really kickstart the dynamics of, of the World Championship battle. And that's down to Honda. You know, Red Bull have shown at Monaco and places like that, the chassis, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and I think if, if Honda can next year deliver power unit at the same level or, or close enough to, to fight, they're going to be right in it. Before we go on for too much longer, let, let's finish off with a bit of predictions. I know how much everyone, myself included, loves predictions. So come on, Karun, Drivers' Championship, Constructors' Champion. I'm going to say Lewis for the drivers and let's say Ferrari for Constructors just to be left field. Split strategy? Split, Scott? split uh, strategy. A, a complete split because I, I, my head says Lewis, but just the way this season's going, I just it would be brilliant for F1 if there's a twist. I think Vettel is... As long as he just minimises those mistakes we talked about, he's good enough to do it. So I think Vettel for the drivers, but I think Hamilton Bottas is a stronger pairing than Vettel uh, Vettel Raikkonen. So I think Vettel drivers Ferrari uh, Mercedes for the constructors. Well, I'll fulfil my role as the voice of tedium and just go for Hamilton and, and Mercedes to win the two. Unfortunately, which is is a shame in many ways, not because they don't deserve it, but I think when you've had a period of domination by any team, it's good to have the others winning. So I think it'd probably be better for F1 this year to have. I mean, and ultimately, it's the drivers' championship that people look to. You know, people. If you say who won the '94 championship, well, it's Michael Schumacher. It wasn't Williams who won the constructors that year, was it? So, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for Mercedes and, and Hamilton to so, do so you, double. So you're picking Kimi Raikkonen to win the drivers' championship and Red Bull to win the teams' championship. That's really bold, Ed. I almost said Renault would ever run at it, but uh, no. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, I, unfortunately I've, not, I've, I've buoyed not. by the signing of Daniel Ricciardo. Renault goes on a massive winning run in the second half of the season. Yeah, it's uh, you never know. Uh, Anything can happen, as as people say. Although anything can't happen, it's going to be it's going to be one of Mercedes or Ferrari, isn't it? Will you be able to follow all the news and updates from the Belgian Grand Prix? Myself and Scott will be heading over there in our in our hire car. And one of the good things about Belgium is you get to drive there rather than fly. And Karun will be over there for for Channel Four. And you never know, may 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 come with his occasional autosport contributions. Also check out our Plus subscriber area. There's all sorts of in depth uh, articles there from the world's leading motorsport journalists. Plus, of course. 
myself, Scott, and occasionally Karun uh, again crops up on there. But there's there's some there's some good writers as well, so we, we can uh, we can promise you there's quality there. Also check out F1 Racing Magazine out monthly and Autosport Magazine out every uh, every Thursday. We've obviously got uh, an in-depth uh, look at Fernando Alonso's decision to walk away from Formula One in 2019 in the uh, in the print magazine on Thursday. And also check out sister title motorsport.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. If you're looking to get a new car, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive. Sure, you love your old car, but you know it's not normal to give instructions on how to open the window. It should be self-explanatory, but it's not. And notice how when you're in other people's cars, you can feel cushion in the seats? That's pretty nice, right? No, it's just normal. So bundle your renter's and car insurance with Progressive and put the savings toward a new car. It's time. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.